We are a culture that loves superstars and celebrities. Famous names, famous people, famous places, uh, faces, excuse me. We're actually taught from a very young age to recognize those famous names and people and even to idolize them. Some examples of this, I mean, you could just think back in the culture around us and consider the celebrities, musicians, actors, and how aware are we of their details of their lives. Their magazines, gossip columns, television programs, internet sites, all with the idea to keep us informed of what they're doing, and especially when they are in trouble and doing bad behavior. And the sad truth about it is, this is extra, it's not in my notes, if we really examine what that is, we're no better than being a glorified peeping Tom into their lives. And then there's athletes. A number of them are so well known and worship because of their abilities and charisma and a lot of times good marketing campaigns around them to sell shoes that we know about them. When I was a kid, if you would have said the name Michael and the word basketball, that's all you needed to know. Everybody knew that you were talking about Michael Jordan. Now, unfortunately, we have taken that sort of idea and we've brought it into the church. Famous pastor worship. Some regard the words of famous pastors who you listen to their broadcasts on the radio or online. You get the podcast of them and you spend more time with them than your own pastor. And yet these people don't know who you are. They have never prayed for you. They don't know you exist, and therefore, even as great pastors and men of God, they won't ever hold you accountable. It's a way where we could kind of feed our own ego and to say, hey, I'm somewhat identified with someone who's famous, but never be put under the authority of a church. This is something that we actually see in the Bible as well. Famous pastor worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by way of introduction, let me read to you verses 10 through 14. And what's interesting about this book of 1 Corinthians is Paul is having to deal with all sorts of issues, the misuse of gifts, even some people denying the resurrection of Jesus rampant sexual immorality. What was the first thing he chose to address after his greetings and thanksgiving for the people? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there would be no division among you, that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, he picks up on this later on, chapter 3. He's not done. He just brings it up so that he can give a fuller treatment of it in chapter 3. But I, brothers, chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, but I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Conclusion statement, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. In the church of Corinth, they were really bought into this theology of celebrating and magnifying the preacher over the message. And so some people in the church were saying, you know what? I love Apollos. History tells us that he was like the golden-tongued preacher. He was the most eloquent. He would be the guy that you would just be hanging on his words. Some people were more of the intellectual type. They were saying, well, you know what, Apollos, yeah, he's okay, but I like Paul. He goes deep into the theology. He, he blows my mind. And some people were saying, eh, you know, whatever. I'm all about Peter, or as he's mentioned here, Cephas. He actually was with the Lord Jesus, not these other guys. What are you thinking about? And then there was the ultra-spiritual wall. Forget all of those guys. I'm all about Christ and not recognizing the efforts of these other men. We, are, we tend to have hero worship, even of our pastors, and I think the celebrity infatuation also influences us in how we read the Bible. We ooh and we awe over the accounts of Moses and Daniel and Paul. And yet we skip over the ordinary people of the Bible. And I could just prove this to you in your Bible reading. How quickly do you read through the genealogies 
or the end of Paul's epistles where it's just the list of names. And if we're honest, we would all say guilty. We're caught up in the superstar, and we get to the New Testament, we want to we see Christ, and that's a good thing. And yet when we get to Paul's writings, we are more focused on Paul than anyone else. And, and yet, if we're just honest with ourselves and realistic, we're not superstars. None of us ever will be. We can identify more with the ordinary. I mean, which one of us, if we're being realistic, will ever free two million of God's chosen people from slavery, leading them over a sea on dry land, speak to God face to face as one speaks to a friend, and write the foundationary books of the Bible as Moses did? Not me. Or which one of us will be exiled to a far-off land in the service of a king? And for our faith in God, be thrown into a lion's den and escaped unharmed as Daniel did. Maybe if you worked in a zoo, you would have a better chance than me, but I'm still thinking none of us will ever suffer that as well. Or which one of us will preach to thousands of people, planting dozens of churches um, throughout um, the world? and writing the majority of theology that is the backbone of the New Testament, as Paul did. That's not going to be me. Well, I do hope that there are here some this morning, some budding theologians and pastors and missionaries. I really don't think any of us will ever attain to the effectiveness that these superstars of Scripture achieved. Their lives seem to be a little too grand, don't they? A little bit too far out of our reach. So this morning I want to speak about God's fellow workers. That's the title of the sermon today. I've taken it straight from 1 Corinthians 3.9. And this morning we'll look at seven of the Apostle Paul's lesser known companions to see how they were used by God and what their lives teach to us here today. These, what we would look at as mere faces in the uh, crowds of the scripture, we need to put our full gaze upon them this morning. God's fellow workers. Turn to Acts chapter 20, and we'll be introduced to our first Contestant, Acts chapter 20. Now we are familiar with Timothy and Titus since they have epistles written to them, yet just as valuable is this lesser known man that we will be introduced to here. Another one of Paul's companions, a man named Tychicus. A little background here. Paul, after three years of teaching the scriptures in Ephesus, was greatly persecuted as a riot broke out, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. So Paul escaped and visited the churches of Macedonia, and from Macedonia he heads to Corinth. 
Now on this trip as he was heading that way, Paul was visiting all the churches that he planted to help encourage them and help equip them. But also word had reached to him about how desperate the situation was in Jerusalem. And so he was going to all these churches to collect an offering that was going to be given to the persecuted church in Jerusalem to help out the believers there. Now, both for safety reasons and for, I believe, accountability reasons, because he's going to be carrying a large sum of money, Paul chose to bring with him some men to accompany him on this trip that would end up in Jerusalem. We're introduced to Paul's companions in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Let's read that. So, Peter the Berean, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Tychicus was one of the representatives from Asia, what we would call modern-day Turkey. Tychicus must have been, uh, or may have been, from Ephesus, just like the other companion from Asia was Trophimus. We do know Trophimus was from Ephesus. Very likely, so was Tychicus. Now, to be chosen to accompany Paul must speak a lot about Tychicus's character. He must have been a trustworthy man, a man of great integrity, to be entrusted by the Apostle Paul with this important task of carrying the money to the destination in Jerusalem. What kind of man was Tychicus? He's the type of man you could give the church offering to, and all of it would be deposited in the bank and none of it into his wallet. We meet up with Tychicus again a number of years later, and I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And as you turn there, let me give you again some background so that we can understand the reading. Paul is under house arrest in Rome awaiting a trial under Emperor Nero himself. Paul has written two or possibly even three very important letters. And they're just not any letters, but they are Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed, the very letters of the Word of God. I'm referring to the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, definitely, and perhaps even the letter that went to Philemon was written at this time as well. But there's a problem. Paul's in prison. How is he going to get these letters to the churches? So who will carry these divinely inspired, precious letters to their destination? Who would be able to explain the contents and to encourage the churches there? Who would be dependable enough to get this vital job done for the building up of Christ's church? Who could Paul count on in this most desperate hour of his life? 
is none other than trustworthy and dependable Tychicus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was beloved by Paul, partially for his service and his responsibility. He's called a beloved brother, but he's also called here a faithful minister. And in fact, if you read Colossians 4, 7, he's also called a faithful slave or faithful servant. Tychicus could be trusted to carry these letters, but more than that, to actually give an accurate account of Paul's circumstances that he was facing in Rome. But even more than just being a glorified messenger boy for Paul, Tychicus was able to comfort their hearts. Did you catch that there? He was able to comfort their hearts. How? He would be able to explain the content of these letters to the churches. You see, Tychicus was going to do a little preaching in his uh, his visits to Ephesus and Colossae. Paul couldn't be everywhere in the Mediterranean world. Yet with a man like Tychicus, he didn't have to be. And if at this uh, time the letter to Philemon was written, it very likely could be the man who accompanied Tychicus to both first Ephesus and then to Colossae was Onesimus, the runaway slave. And so Tychicus may have been the man to help encourage this runaway slave to be faithful and return to his master. Quite a task. But Tychicus was no flash in the pan either. We find him yet again at the end of Paul's life when many others were denying the faith or departing. We see Tychicus again in Titus chapter 3. Let's turn there. Titus chapter 3. Titus was given the task of training and appointing a variety of church leaders, of elders and deacons, in a large group of fledgling church plants on the island of Crete. However, Paul was going to recall Titus from that area in Crete and give him a different task. And it could just be Paul desired before and calling him out and giving him something else to do, wanting to spend a little personal one-on-one time with Titus. So in short notice, who could travel by boat to Crete who would have the knowledge and authority and wisdom to govern and appoint elders in a large number of churches and take up the preaching ministry left by Titus. That's a serious job. 
It would take a man of great spiritual knowledge, wisdom, fortitude. Who was near the top of Paul's list? Tychicus. Titus chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, we're not sure if Tychicus ever did make it to Crete. It might have been Artemis, but we do know that he was on the short list of two. We do know, however, that Tychicus was used in a very similar situation that Paul faced a very short time later. And you can turn back a book to 2 Timothy and look in chapter 4 for that. By this time, Paul had been thrown in the prison for the last time. He knew that he had finished the race, he had kept the faith, and that his execution would soon be approaching him. It was time for the battered and tired warrior to meet his beloved captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has one last wish in sitting in prison in Rome, awaiting his execution. He desires to see the person which he calls his child in the faith. The man we know as Timothy. However, at this point, Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. So Timothy could not just up and leave the church in Ephesus without a shepherd. And so who could be trusted to walk into a church that was filled with false teachers? And we do know that from Acts chapter 20, when Paul says, when I depart from the Ephesians, false wolves will come in among you. Who could bravely endure the personal attacks that would go along with correcting false teachers? As he would probably be called unwise and unloving. Who could boldly but gently correct the congregation and lead the people back to the right understanding of the word of God? Who else but beloved Tychicus? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. What does he say? Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. All right. Skip down to verse 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is apparently carrying this letter of 2 Timothy to Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy is going to read it, pack his bags, go to Rome. And Tychicus is going to take his place. Tychicus is Timothy's temporary replacement. Who was Tychicus? He was always ready to go, never complaining. Always sufficient and godly. Let me compare to you Tychicus by way of analogy. That'd be the best way to do it. Since baseball season has started and new, every baseball team has on their roster a utility player. They're not well known. They don't earn the big paycheck. 
No fans buy their jersey and wear them to the park. And yet the utility player may just be one of the most valuable players on the baseball team. He can play any position, you see, at the drop of a hat. The third baseman gets injured, he'll play third. The left fielder needs a day off, he'll play left. He's the guy the manager can call upon in a pinch just to get the job done. That's Tychicus. Whatever the task Paul gave him to do, he got the job done. And did you notice as time went by with Tychicus, he grew and, and as he matured, his responsibility also grew and matured. First he did just administrative tasks, like counting and carrying shackles. Then he carried and explained Paul's letters to encourage and build up the churches. Eventually, by the end of it all, he's shepherding, he's training leadership, he's pastoring churches. If I had one word to hang around Tychicus's neck, it would be the word faithful. Faithful. That was the word that Paul called him many times, saying that he was a faithful slave of Christ, a faithful minister. Every church needs some Tychicuses, faithful people who will faithfully serve in whatever role they are called to do whether it be like Cammie taking out the garbage every week after church or Richard faithfully mowing the lawns. You know these people. They're the 20% who do 80% of the work behind the scenes. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. The second of God's fellow workers who served besides Beside Paul was a man named Epaphras. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 7. To the church in Colossae, Paul is writing and he says, To the people, just as you learned it from Epaphras... Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ in your behalf. Now, why did I bring that up, and what can we get out of this verse? What probably happened is this. During the three years that Paul was faithfully teaching the word of God in Ephesus, he was training men to go out and to do the work of evangelists and church planners. Paul, as far as we know, never went to Colossae. According to tradition, and that's where we have to hold it loosely in our hands, it's just tradition. Paul taught in Ephesus for five hours a day, seven days a week, in the rented hall of Tyrannus for two straight years. Five hours a day, every day of the week, for two straight years. While Paul can only be in one place at one time and training these other people so faithfully, just pouring the word of God into them, and they soaked it up 
like sponges. Paul was able to multiply his efforts throughout the men that he trained to be evangelists. Paul was so effective at this that in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. All of them. Paul didn't go to every person in Asia Minor. What he did do was train men who did. So it's very likely that Epaphras was one of these men trained by Paul in this great task of church planting there at Ephesus. Epaphras was an extension, you see, of Paul's ministry efforts. And so Epaphras goes, he preaches the gospel in Colossae, and by God's grace, people were saved and a church was formed. But what always happens, and it seems to always happen with new churches, that when God's kingdom advances and people are saved, the pushback by evil spiritual forces comes strong. As a result, false teaching, humanism, empty philosophies creep in the church doors. And it's pretty simple. They just take the philosophies of man, they put Christian terms on them, and people buy into them. In these dire circumstances, the Colossae church was besieged with a combination, and you can read it in Colossians, of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, asceticism, and early Gnosticism. All heresies. These false doctrines is what Paul was waging war against in this short letter. So, probably unsure of what to do. Epaphras goes to Rome to seek out counsel from Paul. And so when Paul sends this letter to Colossae with Tychicus, he does something interesting. He chose to keep Epaphras with him. Now the obvious question is why. What was there in Epaphras that Paul needed him by his side? Why wouldn't he send it back to the church that he helped form and plant? What benefit could Epaphras impart to the great apostle Paul? Why was Epaphras so valuable to Paul? Paul decides to keep him. Couldn't he take the letter back to Colossae instead of Tychicus? So what kind of man was Epaphras? To answer that, turn to the end of the book of Colossians chapter 4, and let's look at verses 12 and 13. Colossians 4, starting in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
What kind of man was Epaphras? He was a gladiator. Gladiator in prayer. He was a gladiator in the arena of prayer. He labored and he battled and he wrestled and he strove and he agonized in prayer. You can look at the word translated as struggling and it's the Greek word agonizomai from which we get the English word agony from. In a way of analogy, he's kind of like Jacob in the Old Testament who wrestled with God and wouldn't let go of God until he was blessed. That was this man Epaphras in prayer. Epaphras' love for the believers in Colossae and the sister churches of Laodicea and Heropolis is, ser- is clearly seen in the sweat of his prayers. And so if you needed one word to summarize Epaphras, I would choose the word prayerful. If you opened up the thesaurus and looked at the Epaphras word, prayerful would be the synonym. Paul was confident, Tychicus, who has taken the letter, and Colossae's new pastor, a man named Erechippus, would be able to straighten out the problems in Colossae. Paul wanted Epaphras to stay in Rome. He didn't want him to go. He was not just another face in the crowd, was he? He was a man of such fervent prayer. Paul wanted Epaphras right there by his side and nowhere else. And Tychicus and Epaphras, faithful and prayerful, are not only the ones who formed the backbone of Paul's ministry team. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll meet the third person, a man named Epaphroditus. Philippians chapter 2. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus also came to Rome about the same time as Epaphras. Don't confuse those names. He came to Rome seeking Paul on behalf of the Philippian church. And according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Epaphroditus came to Rome to give Paul a financial gift. Paul is under house arrest, so he cannot work. He has no funds to pay for his rented house or for food or anything else. And so how would Paul be able to survive? How would he be able to pay for his bills? How could he continue his ministry in Rome? So the Philippian church steps in and says, Paul, we will support you in your gospel efforts. You're our ministry, Paul. You're our missionary. Now, in the ancient world, they just couldn't make a wire transfer of funds. And so Epaphroditus was chosen by the Philippian church that takes this large contribution to travel the long way to Rome to help out Paul. Now, when Epaphroditus comes to Rome with a check in his pocket, so to speak, we need to know that he is on the verge of death. Well, listen to what Paul says of him in Philippians Chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Actually, chapter 2, verse 25. Sorry. I 
have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and my minister to my need. Why is Paul sending him back? I thought Epaphroditus was there to serve Paul and minister to Paul's need. Why is he sending him back? Why doesn't he just keep him? He kept Epaphras. Why not Epaphroditus? Verse 26. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only to him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why? Verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If you opened up the dictionary and flipped to the word, that exemplifies Epaphroditus, it would be the word sacrificial. Sacrificial. Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier in verse 25, and that's exactly what Epaphroditus was. He viewed life and he viewed ministry as a soldier would. And like any good soldier, Epaphroditus knew that the success of his mission was more important than his own life. If the last thing Epaphroditus ever did was to drag his wasted, sickly, nearly dead body up the steps of the rented house in Rome to give the the check to Paul, if that was the last thing he did, he would do it and then die. Epaphroditus might do more than that in life. He would never do less than that. He would never do less than that. You see, he was a soldier. Duty came first. So Paul says to the Philippians, if you want to imitate someone, imitate Epaphroditus. Hold men like him in high regard because he is sacrificial, willing to give up even his own life for the ministry of Christ's church. Now, when you look behind the scenes of the people who are helping out Paul and all the other apostles, is it any wonder that they changed the world with men like these? With Christ as their head and men like this beside them, it's no wonder, no wonder they changed the world. But, you know, it wasn't just men who contributed to Paul's ministry. It was women also one of which is named Phoebe. Turn to Romans chapter 16. Phoebe. Phoebe was from the city of Chantria. It was a port city on the more famous uh, city of Corinth. 
You might never have heard of Phoebe, but Paul certainly had. And he speaks about her in Romans chapter 16. Now, Paul was actually at the city of Corinth at this time when he wrote the epistle to the Christians at Rome. Phoebe was actually going to Rome from the city, and we are not told for what reason why she was going to Rome. And in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 2, Paul is actually writing her a letter of recommendation to the church of Rome. So listen what it says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church of Chantria, that you receive her in the Lord and in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. Why? For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Now, Phoebe's word is obviously going to be helpful, isn't it? That word hardly seems to adequately communicate what kind of a woman Phoebe really was. It's just not strong enough. It's too weak. It's just too feeble of a word to communicate the amazing character of Phoebe. The English Standard Version of the Bible translates the word as patron instead of helper. Patron is a person who gives financial or other types of support to a person or an organization or a cause. Yet even the word patron doesn't seem strong enough of a word to express the valuable service that Phoebe gave to Paul and others at the church. The word translated as helper or patron literally meant to stand before or beside someone it was most commonly used of a slave who would sacrificially pour out his or her time and resources only for the serving and strengthening of others. Now that's Phoebe. All of life is about helping somebody else. Paul himself had experienced this firsthand from Phoebe. She was a woman whose dignity was revealed by her service. What was Phoebe's character like? In my mind, I suspect that if Phoebe was there, when Epaphroditus was in Rome and she saw that Epaphroditus couldn't make it up the steps to deliver the money to Paul, she would have thrown him over her shoulders, carried him the last flight of stairs. She was a helper of many, including Paul himself. And with her gentle and quiet spirit, she stood beside anyone in need to meet that need. So far, we've met four of Paul's fellow workers, describing them in John Bunyan-esque type of terms, faithful, prayerful, sacrificial, and helpful. Let's meet the next two that we're going to talk about, we can describe them as hospitable. They are Mr. and Mrs. Hospitality. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Hospitable. 
there, of course, the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla. Acts chapter 18. On Paul's second missionary journey, he crossed from Asia, modern-day Turkey, into the territory previously unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in Macedonia and in Greece. He preached and was persecuted at Philippi and then in Thessalonica and then in Berea. After a short stay in Athens, and you can read about that in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, Paul moved the base of his ministry to Corinth for a year and a half. In Corinth, he met and... Um, a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and they became fixtures of Paul's ministry team. We read about them in chapter 18 of Acts, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul is in their house, living with them. And I I suspect that when Paul leaves Corinth a year and a half later, since he leaves with Aquila and Priscilla, I I would suspect that he stays the whole year and a half in their house. Jump over the verse 18 in Acts, 18, 18. After this, it says, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Paul continues south all the way to Jerusalem. Aquila and Priscilla stays in Ephesus. And it was at Ephesus that Aquila and Priscilla met a preacher named Apollos and kind of fine-tuned his theology a little bit on baptism. Paul, as he had promised the Ephesians, came back to the city of Ephesus. He returned there on his third missionary journey, and so he hooked up with this husband and wife team again. We know that because they're mentioned at the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written while Paul was in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 reads... The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, which is a diminutive form of Priscilla. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you a hearty greetings in the Lord. In Corinth, they housed Paul. Now in Ephesus, they housed a church. A year or two later, when the book of Romans was written, we find that Aquila and Priscilla had returned to Rome. It was probable that Aquila and Priscilla returned to Rome shortly after the death of Emperor Claudius, who had formally banished all the Jews from Rome. This would take some time, uh, place sometime uh, approximately after 54 AD. Aquila and Priscilla have changed locations yet again, but they remain the same couple. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, 
who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but to all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to them as well. Greet also the church in their house. Do you see their hospitality? They move to Rome and immediately they're inviting the church to meet in their house. And of course, you had to have noticed in verse 4 that they laid their lives on the line to rescue Paul out of some dire circumstances. The whole New Testament church owed Priscilla and Aquila Paul's life. The last mention of this dynamic duo comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where all it says in verse 19 is, Greet Prissa and Aquila. We learn here, obviously, that they moved back from Rome to Ephesus again. They were a well-traveled couple, but wherever they went, they opened up their home to the saints. They're the prime example of New Testament biblical hospitality. And so far up to this point, we have sketched out the lives of a number of Paul's companions, his fellow workers. We have learned something of the lives of Tychicus, Epaphras, Epaphroditus, Phoebe, Aquila, and Priscilla. I wish I could stop there, but I can't. There's one more of Paul's fellow workers that we need to look at. He's spoken about in Colossians chapter 4, and the man's name is Demas. Colossians chapter 4, Paul, as he often did, sent greetings, not only for himself, but also from all those who were with him, working around him for the gospel of Christ. So at the end of this letter, he mentions another of his fellow workers in verse 14, Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Demas is also mentioned at the end of the letter of Philemon, which was written about the same time as the book of Colossians. And there, Demas is actually called a fellow worker. So although we know nothing virtually about the man, Demas at this point was a part of the circle of Paul's fellow workers. So he must have prayed with Paul, ate with Paul, slept beside Paul, preached with Paul, everything. He's part of the team. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's last letter, written shortly before his death. Many have turned away from the faith. Others were dead, martyred for their faith. Luke was with Paul, according to this chapter. But the rest of the team were out ministering as they were, had always done. Titus was in Dalmatia. Mark serving somewhere. Timothy was in Ephesus. Tychicus was going to Ephesus to replace him. Aquila and Priscilla were in Ephesus as well. No one besides Luke was there to help Paul. 
but you count them up on your fingers and you say, but what about Demas? Where's Demas at? Where's the fellow co-worker? Where's the fellow disciple who had sat under the feet of the Apostle Paul to be trained? Surely he would be at the side of his beloved Paul, the end of Paul's life. Paul's an elderly man. Imagine how Paul even felt getting up in the morning after enduring beatings without number, five times receiving 39 lashes from the hands of the Jews, shipwrecked in all the sorts of persecution, nights where he was cold or starving. He must have ached and hurt from all those battle scars of the faith. Here he is, an old man in, in a prison cell. Where's Demas? Surely he's there to help his beloved friend and mentor, to lovingly serve him in this time of need. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas had deserted Paul. He had deserted Christ. Demas wasn't there because he was lustful. Though he had served with Paul, though he had preached besides Paul, though he had preached the very gospel of Christ, apparently for years he had done so. In the end, his true character came out. He lusted after the fleeting pleasures of sin, the lure and excitement of worldliness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He had abandoned those who counted on him. He had abandoned Christ. Demas' word, lustful. So just faces in the crowd, right? Virtual nobodies in the New Testament, but where would Paul have been without faithful Tychicus or irrepressible Epaphroditus? And if Aquila and Priscilla had not risked their necks for Paul's, And if he was a nobody, why did it hurt so badly when Demas abandoned the cause? Where would Paul have been if Phoebe had not been beside him to hold him up? And would anything of any eternal spiritual significance had happened if Epaphras had not been in the back room praying as Paul preached? These might not be the New Testament names that you or I would expect to do a character study on. You could and probably have read right past them dozens of times without noticing. But be careful that you are not so enthralled with the superstars of Scripture that you miss the lessons found in the lives of the ordinary. 
Paul does seem a little sometimes to be a little too far out of reach, doesn't he? He had the type of ministry effectiveness that I'll never have. But who here among us cannot be faithful like dear beloved Tychicus? Growing in responsibility as you mature in Christ-likeness. And you don't have to be a theological superstar to pray like Epaphras did. Just got to love others. And show some discipline. And if you do that, you'll be the kind of person that people will be dying to work beside in ministry. You don't have to wear blue and red pajamas and have a huge S on your chest to be sacrificial like Epaphroditus. You just have to be committed, don't you? Committed to Christ. Demas sacrificed all for his lust, but Epaphroditus sacrificed all for his Lord. The mission came first because of his love for the commander. Phoebe, what an example she is. You might have looked right past her, but Paul never did. She had held him up by the strength of her service. Without her, Paul would have fallen to the ground and shattered into a million pieces. In the army of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Can there be any greater, more honorable title, title than the helper of many, like Phoebe? That's Christ-likeness. Aquila and Priscilla, didn't matter if they were in Corinth or Rome or Ephesus, Their hospitality made every church where they served a place of love and care. I suspect that their open home was used by God to open up many hearts to the gospel. These are not just individuals milling around the New Testament. They are men and women that we need to model our lives after. So pick one of them this week. Know them, study them, become them.